G'day everybody, this is Colin of Outlaw Bows here again. This is episode four. Uh, Ali can't join us today, unfortunately, but I've brought in a guest today, Mr. Perry Jackson. G'day folks, how are you? So, so what we're going to do, first off, uh, if you can give the pages that I run uh, a bit of a follow. So Facebook is Outlaw Bows, Instagram is Outlaw underscore Bows, or YouTube is just Outlaw Bows. So if you're interested in any of the content, jump on and have a look at that stuff. Heaps of inf interesting information gets posted up there, lots of build-alongs and uh, lots of things for everybody to look at. So first off today, um, what I'd like to do is, Perry, just give us a bit of an intro and a bit of a history on yourself and your uh, lifetime in archery. Right, no. Well, mate, ever since I was a child, my parents always reckoned I was born a thousand years too late. I used to reckon it was more like 10,000, but no, they're probably on the money. Um, I can remember like four years old, an epic belting I got because I cut up mum's rosebush to make arrows. <laughs> And I, I, I used a bit of elastic for the for the string, and I used a I broke a slat of uh, Dad's Western Red Cedar uh, Venetian blinds on the Queenslander house to use yeah. for the bow. Yeah. So, but I I, I actually start, started archery proper would have been about 1978 or 79. I was you know 13, 14 years old. Mm -hmm at the Grange uh, Company of Archers, as they were called there, Days Road at the Grange in Brisbane. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, in those days it was known as Feeder, that's the Olympic style archery. Yep, yep. Yeah. Awesome. And how have you progressed through archery from when you started out to what your, like what's your journey been through through archery? You started off as a competitive shooter or, or were in hunting the hunting scene first? I was always, always motivated and interested in hunting. Mm -hmm. um, always um, uh, sort of attracted to the, those sorts of the skills, the outdoor skills that you require. Mm -hmm. So tracking skills and you know, navigation, oh. all that sort of stuff, everything that comes along with it, really. But well, you know, to to the young, to my young mind at the time, it was. You know, survival type. Mm, yeah, skills, survival you know. stuff for sure. Yeah, yeah but I yeah, always. If I I used to nick off from home when I was a little boy, and Mum always found me playing down in the creek. You know, so mm. it was always out. Just had to be outside. Outside lifestyle for sure. Yes. Um, and have you shot competitive archery? You shot competitive archery a little bit in your younger days. Oh, when I was. When I, um, very early on at the Grange uh, Company of Archers, I realised I didn't, the, the Olympic style archery wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to shoot bare bow. Yep. And uh, one, one gentleman by the name, he's probably my first mentor, I'd say, a fellow by the name of Merv Kelly at the Grange Company of Archers, he suggested that, uh, he told me all about the Grange bow hunters and how they had recently broken away from the Grange Company of Archers. Okay. And uh, I, I, I went down there. Mm -hmm. And that, 
that was an IB very early days. That was a it's an ABA club. The Grange Bowman's still there, I believe, in Aspley. Yeah, they, they changed. They were on Beckett's Road as the Grange Bone Hunters. Yeah. Uh, and then the, they were on that land. Uh, uh, LJ Hooker owned that land, and when mm. it would come time to develop it, they had to move. Yeah. So they had to change their name from Grange Bow Hunters to Grange Bowman in yeah. order to get the public land down there at Albany Creek, mm. the crematorium. Yeah, that's right. Awesome. And then, have you changed your style of shooting going from the target, more target style shooting? Has your shooting form or anything changed as you moved into more a hunting style setup? Probably the first 20 years that I bow hunted, I used my target form. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, feet, hips, shoulders all in alignment, you know. Yeah. very upright stance, all of that. And mm. uh, the benefit of that is that you're, you're very well balanced. Yeah, for so sure. So if, if in a hunting situation you, uh, you you need to get yourself into an awkward spot, say you've got to shoot from your knees, Yeah, you've still got that grounding in the, the basic biomechanics where your body's aligned. Mm-hmm. So you don't, you're, you're a far more consistent archer. Yeah, I think consistency definitely comes from consistency starting at the ground up and work your way up into then drawing the bow and anchor and everything else. Yes, uh, but uh, as I, I shot heavyweight bows um, for that form, you know, because you're mm-hmm. being taught as a target archer, you're shooting 40 or a 50 pound bow at most. Yeah. And here I am at um, 15 years old, I went and bought myself a an 82 pound uh, compound bow, a bear grizzly. You know? Yeah, stuff like that's unheard of these days. You wouldn't yeah, find... And that sort of form, it, it did take a toll on my on my back and my shoulders over the years. Yeah, so I, I have had to adapt to a... Um, t- you know, as, as my... As the uh, injuries... The wear and tear, yeah. Yeah, the wear and tear as that took hold I had to change things yes mm. but yeah the, the basic form that I did learn as a target archer I still hold very dear to my heart mm. I think building the basics and building from the basics and then adapting them to each individual is a good way to teach shooting um, I think everybody can't shoot exactly the same they all have their own little um, nuances and whatnot that people develop little habits and things like that but as long as they remain consistent from shot to shot then each archer can develop you know good accuracy well that, that's another thing that i learned with we're going with this starting target archery that i had is that everybody is different and i mm. learned i did learn about the the biomechanical uh, requirements that, you know, because everybody's skeleton yeah. articulates slightly differently. Yeah, slightly longer longer or shorter bones in forearms and upper arms and different muscle attachments, variations like that. They do come into play a little bit, so yeah, you've got to you sort know. of tailor it to the individual. You get a, a slightly built person. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got, got to have a very different form than a barrel-chested person, you know? Yeah, definitely. Mm. That's good. 
And you've been into making your own equipment a long time as well. You started out early, as a, even as a little kid, I guess. You're interested in making things. And tell us a bit about how your journey in making your own equipment's gone. Well, uh, I didn't really answer the question earlier about the competition, but in the eighties, uh, I shot a, quite a bit of competition with um, commercially made gear, mm-hmm. and I got. I got pretty sick of that pretty quick. By the time I was in my late teens, I wasn't shooting competition anymore and I was really gravitating heavily towards hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, pretty much from the moment I, I bought my first car, I was off <laughs> out hunting. And um, it, it ended up that I had a, an eight-year break from competitive shooting from when I was, I think I was about 18 through to when I was about 25. Um, and that whole time I hunted, and when I come back uh, to the Gra- to the Grange Bowman as they were known by then, uh, the competition it just didn't float my boat. The modern modern equipment it just didn't float my boat mm. any longer. And then uh, one of the members of the the club there turned up with a bow he made himself. Um, it was horrible. <laughs> it was a horrible thing but you know he made it himself and then all of a sudden you know my imagination was fired yeah and then two weeks later um, I made I made my first boat mm-hmm. because I was I was introduced to a, a fellow by the name of Glenn Newell and uh, Glenn become a major influence on me with he, he mentored me mm-hmm. um, and then after a little while, when I become competent making the bows, um, we started bouncing ideas off each other, and uh, we we realised that uh, a lot of the principles that we learned uh, apply to American timber, and but they didn't apply to Australian timber. Yeah, that's right. Given that. Uh, a lot of the bow making books and everything and you know the archery industry itself has basically been born from the, the US there's not a lot of literature out there about things that come from down here and the wood properties are very different to work with and, and you know design changes need to be made to cope with those those differences so you're kind of rewriting the book really well that's that's it exactly I like you when the Bayes Bibles come out, uh, you know, we, you can imagine we run out and we bought copies of them and we read them and <laughs> they just didn't ring true with our, our, the experience we had with Australian timber, you know. Like, mm. We couldn't go to the hardware store and buy a lump of Osage Orange. We, at that stage, we didn't even know that it grew in Australia. Yeah, that's right. You know, they um, because it was introduced here in the 1850s from the, the gold rush, American mm-hmm. gold miners come over to, you know, and they brought the Osage with them. Heaven knows why, but they did. Yeah, it's great. It grows around, does grow around the place. It's hard to find, but it is here, so. But yeah, the, the stuff that we have down here, like all the eucalypts and, and some of the other timbers that we have behave a little bit different to what you find with Osage and, and you as especially, but um, strangely enough, there's some similarities between 
some woods we have here in those timbers. So, well, take the acacias. Uh, I, there was there was one fellow uh, I can't remember his name anymore. He, he lived up at Mount Isa Way, mm-hmm. and uh, he'd come down to Brisbane reasonably regularly. And along the way, he was cutting mulga and pidgey and what have you. Yeah. And then he would start applying some of these American principles, and he would start thinning the sap wood, and mm-hmm. you know, of course, Osage Orange, you've got to thin the sap wood. And most so he, most he, guys over there just well, take it completely off; they don't, well, they don't even bother with it. Yeah, remove the sap wood. I mean, you know, and mm. uh, so he'd do this on this lump of mulga. Yeah, and the bow worked. But I'm standing there the whole time wondering, well, why the bloody hell? Do you have to do that? So I just started experimenting. Mm. And then I found that, uh, like I got hold of some brigolo and I got mulga and gigi as well. And there's this, the Australian timber, the sapwood, it's just so damn tough. It can handle tension and compression. Yeah, that's right. I found, I found the same in my bow making you often, you know, having played around with stuff like black wattle, which is an acacia, I've ended up with you know, next to none or no heartwood left in the bow and you still get a good shooting bow at the end of it. Yeah, so, I mean, the only reason to thin these, the sapwoods on these acacias is aesthetic reasons, you know. If you want to mimic that thinned sapwood um, that you get on a, on a classic U. Mm, have that two-tone look. Yeah, that two-tone look. That's, that's the only reason, aesthetics. I think... The, well, the only other reason I can think of doing it is if, you know, acacias are pretty prone to bugs getting in them. So um, I've been playing with Brigolo stave there and it had borer tracks through it. So I just thinned underneath the borer tracks, leveled them out and, and it should be fine now. You know, every, every um, acacia bow that I've worked on, there's always, you, you'll find the borers. Mm, they just get into it. Yeah, and, uh, they, the trees grow so slowly, the growth rings are so fine, the, mm. the, the timber is so tough that you just don't worry about following growth rings and all this sort of stuff, which mm-hmm. is on the back of a bow. But if you if you read the Bayes Bibles and it's a must. American timbers, you know, it's a must. You must do it. Mm. You know, you, you've even got to go as far as differentiating between winter and summer growth on the yeah, back of your bow. Chasing rings and stuff. Yeah. It's not yeah. necessary with the vast majority of Australian timber that I've used. Yeah, I've had the same experience with the staves that I've played around with here. You know, I've used soapwood, I've used acacias, I've played around with some of the uh, some of the eucalypts as well. And you know, from my experience, you peel the bark off, take the cambium off, and then you're pretty well good to go if need be. And you know, if there is bore a track on the back of the bow work down underneath them but don't pay any attention to the ring that you might be in because a lot of the time they're that fine you can't see them anyway well that's so. it, I think yeah exactly right exactly you know, I remember uh, I used to go and shoot uh, I think it was a Wednesday night at that range company of archers and they, had, they cleaned the shed out one day and this was my first contact with a wooden bow uh, they found this old wooden bow in the rafters. You know, mm. God knows how many decades it had been stuck up there. <laughs> but uh, it it had, you know, thinking back on it, it was definitely some sort of an acacia, and they had thinned it, the sapwood, and they, they had followed the old English 
mm. uh, Longbow they apply yeah. those principles to the to the acacia mm -hmm. and knowing what I know now it was actually a really badly made bow <laughs> because uh, they just didn't they tried to apply these European and American principles mm. to an Australian timber yeah and it's just oftentimes it just doesn't work out well um, you know my experience with Australian stuff is it likes to be flat um, you know you wood is pretty amazing stuff in what you can put it through in terms of its elasticity but a lot of Australian woods that we have down here like to be that uh, flatter limb you know lenticular cross-section style um, limb and you know that works really well with very little heartwood left in it if any whereas in a u-bow you can have a few millimeters of sapwood just to hold it together and the rest of the stave is heartwood so it's a bit different especially on the mass side of things yeah that's it too i mean use not a not a heavy wood by any means i think the density is around 700 kilos per cubic meter and you won't find most woods down here less than sort of eight nine hundred in a hardwood or what we class as a hardwood so very different animals absolutely and then coming along like with experimenting with bows then you would have been building your own arrows as well no doubt Oh, mate, uh, what coincided with all of this is I, is I met my wife and, you know, pretty soon we, we started raising a family, so budget come in. Mm -hmm. And so that made it even more important that I learned how to make all my own gear instead of uh, relying on scoreboard components and then just assembling them. Mm. That's you know, right. So I started looking at everything I could to keep me shooting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it started with uh, buying hardware store dowels because really that's all a, that's all a commercially made arrow shaft is, is a dowel. Yeah, basically that's right. I think dowels for arrows is probably where a lot of people go to when they get into making their own stuff um, just because they're cheap and easy to access around the place. I mean, we have Bunnings, you can go into Bunnings and get pine dowels or tassie oak dowels and things like that and make you know half decent arrow shafts if you do pay attention to the grain in them but they're certainly not quite the same as having matched uh, a match set coming from an arrow make uh, an arrow shaft manufacturer well that that's right mate like I, uh, I i went from the hardware store dowels because they my budget didn't extend to buying dowels mm. uh, for too long so i started saving me money and I went to uh, I tracked down uh, wholesalers that sold instead of individual dowels I started buying packets of ramen dowels mm -hmm. uh, I think it was you know, 100, 150 or 160 dollars for this bundle of ramen dowel and I'd get 300 arrow sharps out of it mm, that's right and, you and know, know, 50 the, cents for an arrow shaft isn't bad and then it, the only issue was with the ramen, it was oval, it wasn't round, and everybody knows you've got to have round arrow shafts. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Mm. You know, being a tropical wood, it actually didn't matter because the, um, there was no hard and fast um, grain like you get with, say, Port Orchard cedar or pines mm. and stuff. But the, the being oval, I, I still, there was, it gnawed at me, I had to make them round. 
So I that's where I started hand planing mm-hmm. uh, to to uh, spine match me arrows. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I know a lot of the stuff that I do, particularly for the heavy bows, it's all hand plane, but getting into you know some of the high performance recurves these days and you know even some of my bows are putting out some pretty impressive numbers um you know spine matching and weight matching shafts is becoming very important even in my archery and my hunting so you know it's going to get to a point where it's going to take a while to get a very good you know well-tuned set made up especially doing it by hand so you will see this Again, this ties back to my start with the um, the target archery, the, the feeder club, because uh, you do learn about precision there. You, you mm-hmm. do learn that you've got to have, your form's got to be just right, the arrow's got to be matched in order to have repeatable precision. And uh, once I started the, the hand playing on the with the ram and arrows to get taken from the, that oval shape to round, I uh, I was driving past timber yards, you know, and I'd, I'd call in, and I would uh, I'd ha- I would j- just start looking at for long straight grain timber because mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I remember I bought a. Found one. I would drive past a nursery, and they had a pallet load of Oregon uh, mm. sleepers out the front. Yeah, Oregon's beautiful. So I bought I bought those three sleepers, and I didn't have the machinery at the time to cut them up into dowel blanks. So I took it to a dowel manufacturer down at Sandgate, mm. and he he cut them up for me, and I got three hundred and sixty arrow shafts out of that. Um, Oregon, mm-hmm. and I just had them machined to three eighths diameter. Yeah, three eight, three would, eight parallel, and go from there. Yeah, and then whatever bow I wanted, I would uh, match them. Mm. So we'll go into a little bit of um, you know basics with arrow tuning itself. Um, there's basically a few things that you can or that are really important to get a, a set of arrows tuned to a particular bow so you know we've all heard of a lot of the guys that have uh, in archery talk about arrow spine which is the arrow's stiffness itself and then you've got other things like the point weight and the length of the arrow itself that you can play with to taper uh, to uh, tune your arrows to the bow to get it to shoot right um, what's your take on length and point weight and spine if you're setting up a set of arrows for a bow? When, when I started, you cut your arrows so that the back of the point come flush with your, flush with your riser. Yep. Right, and they all had to be the same, the same length and all of that, obviously, the consistency, but what took me years to realise is by cutting the arrows that short, what in effect you had made is a, you made the arrows far more sensitive to form errors. Mm. Uh, they they weren't they weren't forgiving. If you if you fluffed a release or you lost a little bit of that tension, 
And let's face it, we're human, we're not machines, that's going to happen. Yeah, not everybody yeah. shoots yeah. as consistent as a, a shooting an machine. Yeah, an arrow that's cut short, it punishes you. Hmm. So then I started leaving them a bit longer, and uh, it gradually got to the case now where my arrows are about 33 or 34 inches long. And you, I, shoot, and you shoot a 28 inch draw. I shoot a 28 inch draw uh, because I get a nice forgiving arrow. Definitely. Yeah. I think, you know, particularly with the stuff that I'm doing now, I mean, I'm shooting very heavy gear in today's standard, you know, 750, 800, up to a thousand grain arrows out of trad bows. I don't know anyone else that's doing that around the place. Um, especially for, you know, in a hunting scenario, but I think going for a longer arrow shaft then gives you more ability to tune the shaft in to get it to really shoot sweet from the bow that you're using at the time. So I would definitely say for the beginners that are getting into arrow tuning, definitely start with a shaft that's long and use all of the factors that you can to get the arrow to tune right. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah like, one thing I realised along the way as, as I... I'm making the bows, I thought, I'm not discovering anything new here. Mm. This is all old knowledge, and to me, it's new, so I'm, I'm, I'm rediscovering it. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly the same with arrows. When you look at ancient cultures, there's a hell of a lot of them used long arrows. There's not too many of them. Yeah, like... Papua New Guinean tribes, African tribes, all South those America. guys. All, yeah, all through South, South America as well. Those, uh, you know, in the Amazon and whatnot, they're all shooting arrows that are 40 inches long, longer even sometimes. Yeah, and then you, you get into some of the, um, say, the Turkish flight arrow. There's a highly specialised arrow. Yeah. Now, that arrow is cut short. It, it's cut to... Because it, it's a high-performance arrow. It needs mm. to react quickly. Yeah, definitely. You know, whereas the, the longer arrows, they loaf along a bit and they, mm. they'll, they'll forgive form errors. But you try and shoot a flight arrow as a target arrow and you quickly discover exactly what I'm talking about. They, yeah, that's it. They're twitchy. Very, very twitchy. I mean, I've only dabbled in flight... Uh, fly, building flight arrows and flight shooting are the tiniest bit, I would say, but... Yeah, very, very hard to tune when you're looking at using things like bone or horn as an arrow point rather than a steel point and the point only weighs 10 grains or something. Um, you know, and then getting FOC then coming into play where it's negative, not positive, but still getting the arrow to fly right. That's very tricky stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, I haven't explored flight arrows to any great degree myself. I just have a very basic knowledge of them. But the, <coughs> you know, the, the hunting weight arrows and even my target arrows now, um, I've, I've, I've learned over the years that I just slow everything down mm. and uh, let, the, let the arrows do the work for me instead of me trying to get them there quicker and everything yeah, else. Yeah, that's right. What's your... What sort of factors do you look for in an arrow setup for a hunting, like a hunting bow? If you if you've got say a fifty pound hunting bow, what sort of sort of specs would you be running as an arrow if it was up to you building it? I was very fortunate 
years and years ago to, to meet Ed Ashby at the time when he was uh, just starting out. He was up to about update two or three on his um, mm. arrow penetration uh, study. He, he, he was chasing what's the threshold, what's, at what point does an arrow, will an arrow penetrate reliably through heavy bone? So for the guys that might not know who Ed Ashby is, Ed Ashby started a study back in the 80s, the early 80s, and he was uh, looking into all the factors that it, uh, came into play with arrow penetration in big game animals, and that's where the, the penetration of bone came into, because he started his tests on things like buffalo in Africa and uh, you know, you know, Cape buffalo, uh, and then you know, later on Asiatic buffalo here in Australia. He did a lot of testing on them as well and you know he's looked at all of the things that come into play that maximize penetration in a hunting arrow so uh, you know well worth a look at ed's studies um there's a lot of stuff there to read but it's definitely well worth reading if you're a serious hunter well it, it's not necessarily uh it doesn't necessarily apply only to hunters either mm. um all archers can can gain a real understanding of of arrow construction and, and what's required to have an arrow fly straight and true mm. by reading the study. You know, Definitely, just, yeah. It doesn't matter what point is on the end of your arrow. Yeah, whether it's a target point or a broadhead. You yeah, know. As long as it matches the intended use, all of the, the, all the principles are the same. Mm. You know, it's a, you know, like for a hunter, you know, for a, I had this simplistic understanding that okay, I just make them, I make the arrow heavy, and I make it sharp, and away I go. What's your take on heavy? What do you class as heavy in terms of an arrow? In terms, of, like relative to whatever poundage you might be shooting. Well, back before I met Ed, um, I didn't think in terms of a specific mass. Mm. I would think, say, I had my that eighty-two pound compound I talked about earlier. I would use, say, a, a, a heavy aluminium arrow, like a 2315, whatever I could buy that matched and whatever yeah. weight that it was when I made it, mm -hmm. I didn't give that any consideration whatsoever. Yeah, it just turned out what it turned out it with turned the fittings. turned out what it turned out. Yeah. But, and this was the great advantage when I started exploring making my own arrow shafts, mm. is... I slowly come to understand the importance of, uh, you know, the structural integrity of the arrow. Yeah, that's right. Right? And then once I realised that the structural integrity and the mass played a role in, mm -hmm. in it all, then you, then you start thinking, well, I wonder what the profile is. Yeah. Does. And so I started experimenting with barrel tapered and t just yeah, tapered. Just tapered, just straight tape, tapered shafts, yeah. Yeah. And how does this affect the arrow flight? And mm -hmm. then about this time, um, through another friend of mine, Sue Lacey, I met I met Ed. Mm. Yeah, um, you know, by no means am I a, an expert in this. You know, I just have a, a basic understanding of the the twelve factors. I can't. I can't sit there and explain things mathematically. You, mm. With your education, you'd be more able to do that than me. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit lucky in the sense that I have that, you know, I have that university education in things that are, you know, 
um, pressures, stiffnesses um, through my civil engineering degree. I have an understanding about how those things work on a mathematical level, but then it's nice to have you there to have practical experience with it all and you can sort of go, all right, well, this is my experience with this setup and, you know, I've done this before and it worked like this and I can kind of put numbers to it as well. So I think between the two of us, we have have it covered pretty well and we can get very decent setups that follow Ed's stuff in his study and his experience as well. Well, that's that's it, mate. Um, so the... You know, the, the, the other thing that ties in is there's the 12, fact, 12 factors that Ed has in his, that he's identified in his arrow lethality study. Mm. But the other thing is bow tuning, you know? Yeah. Uh, again, it, it harks back to my beginnings as a target archer. I am absolutely anal with tuning my bows. My mm. knocking point my, must be spot on. My brace height must be spot on. Yeah. Uh, and but all none of that matters if your form's not right. Yeah, you know, it, it's a total system. They all link into each other, definitely. You know, if one's out of whack slightly, then it's going to have an effect on the other two in the system. And if they're not all working properly, you're not going to get you know good, consistent, perfect arrow flight. Yeah, it, 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 it's something that's astounded me for decades. Is the number of archers out there? that concentrate on one thing, but not the other. They don't see mm. it as a big picture. They just see, they, they just see what's in front of their nose, you know? Mm. And they, they would be far more effective archers, maybe, you know, they get more out of their archery if they understood just on a basic level. What's going uh, on? Yeah, arrow, proper arrow construction is a mm. lot more than just assembling the scoreboard components. Yeah, it's not as easy as I've got a 50-pound bow, I go into a shop and buy shafts for a 50-pound, you know, spine for 50 pounds and these particular points and I cut the arrow this long. It doesn't work quite like that to get perfect flight. There's a lot more in it, I it's, think. Yes, that's, that's it, mate. That's it. So what do you put emphasis on when you design an arrow for a hunting arrow? Because I know when we've spoken, mass is always a big one, and I'm a big proponent of shooting heavy arrows as well. Um, you know, I'd, I wouldn't hunt with anything less than 10 grains per pound of draw weight. That's my personal preference. Um, just because of my uh, educated background, I know what's going on with the arrows downrange. But I know FOC is a big one that we've spoken about quite a bit, having high FOCs. And do you want to just sort of explain a little bit about, just touch on it basically, you know, briefly what FOC is and why it's important? Well, first thing is forward to centre, people, you know, where's, how do you measure forward to centre? Mm. Right, so to be consistent, what you do is you measure from the, the base of your knock groove mm -hmm. to the back of the arrowhead. Yep, so right. just shaft length Just from the knock, knock throat to the point of the shaft, the, the front of the shaft, yep. That's it, see, because when you fit a different head, you change the overall length of the arrow. Yeah. Right, and uh, you, you you could have a 300 grain broadhead and a 300 grain field point, and they're, they're very different lengths. Yeah, that's right, the 300 grain broadhead could be three inches yeah, long. Yeah, and what doesn't change is the percentage of mm. the forward of centre. So yep. if a certain weight arrowhead 
gives you 10% forward or centre. That's that is that's 10% forward of that centre measurement from yeah. the knot groove to the mm. back of the arrowhead. Yeah. So we we're talking about the centre of mass. So the centre of mass being in front of or closer to the point of the arrow or the point of the shaft, the front end of the shaft, than the actual geometric centre of the the arrow shaft. Yeah. See, what what led me down that path a little bit um, before Ed is I love me crossbows mm-hmm. and I used to make and shoot my own crossbows before they they changed the regulations and um, you know, introduced licensing. Right, uh, and then become illegal to make your own crossbows. But when you get to the bolts, I I just made them like little arrows, you know, mm. and they didn't work. And uh, so then I started, because you've got to remember also in those days, I didn't have access to the internet. All I had was literature. Yeah. And you talk to people and stuff. And then I worked out, well, hang on, I wonder why crossbow bolts have great heavy heads on them. Mm. So then I started, you know, um, I would get a a field point and I would solder a nut on the end of it because that was the only way I could think of to add mass to it and then I'd shoot it and oh that changed the way it shot you know? yeah I guess adding weight to the front of something so short like that isn't going to really increase the FOC that it's got um, and that's well, going to that's going to play a big role in stability downrange. well the way I used to think about it is you've got this great lump of steel on the front and it, when you when you throw when you throw an arrow, you don't not not shooting it out of the bow. But you say you get an arrow that's got a light point, and mm. you throw it. It 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 doesn't straighten out. Yeah, they often don't. They'll fly yeah. good. But if you get a an arrow that's got an extremely heavy point on it, and then you throw it physically, that that mass takes over at the mm. front of the arrow. And it, it creates a more stable flight. Yeah, you get that big lever arm between the centre of mass and where the drag is, and the fletchings in the back, and you you, you know uh, you know longer levers create more obviously create more leverage, so you get the arrow will stable uh, stabilise itself a lot faster. So yeah, and you know then that leads you into the the shaft profile. Mm. Um, like if you, if we're talking a pure hunting setup. And you've got, say, a barrel arrow, mm. uh, that's not going to work as well as, say, a, a straight tapered arrow because in the barrel arrow, you've got the thickest section of the shaft smack. is halfway along. Yeah, smack bang in the middle. Yeah, so you shoot your arrow and then it goes through paradox out of the bow. Mm-hmm. Then when it strikes the, uh, the object that you're shooting at, it all starts, it starts all over again. Yeah, and that was something that I'd, I listened to Ed's podcast that he did with Steve Rinella recently and that was something that I hadn't considered much at all is you get these two points of flexion, the arrow coming off the bow and then the same thing again when the arrow impacts because it has a velocity, it has an energy, it has a deceleration at that point. So you get that same flexing going on when it hits the animal and then also transferring through the animal itself. Um, and that's something that most hunters would not consider at all in their arrow design no no you know like the you've got your light you can imagine you've got a lightweight um you've got an arrow with a load four center say five or mm. ten percent 
And then that light, uh, that low forward center arrow strikes the object mm. and those oscillations start, you're going you're gonna to have more oscillation towards the back of the arrow than you are at the front mm. because the, the mass at the front, isn't, it's not guiding the arrow. Yeah, that's right. So the, if there's more mass at the back of the shaft, you're going to get these uh, these oscillations with more weight moving in them, so they're not going to dissipate quite as quick. Yeah, whereas the and it's precisely the opposite when you've got um, a high a big FOC. That's right. Yeah. I know Ed speaks in his in his podcast that he did um, having different rates of FOC in in what he you know, categories that he's classified them as. And, I think from 13% up to 20% is is a high FOC and then after that he goes into extreme and further on again is an ultra extreme FOC and you know building arrows with those types of border centers is quite tricky even using standard components these days um, so doing it back then would have been a bit of a task well the, the, there was just nothing available uh, he, had, he had to be he had to be quite innovative in how he, he did this stuff. But mm. when you when you actually stop and think about that, uh, this all of the answers to today's problems lie in the past. Mm. Like you, you ask yourself, how did primitive people arrive at their five foot long arrows or their their river cane arrows with the heavy foreshaft mm. on them? Uh, and so when you apply those principles, like they, like they worked out years ago that you can add mass to an arrow by hollowing out the top, the um, the forend, mm. and sticking something heavy up there. Yeah, well, that's something I've started playing with again, even now. It's it's not something that's been done for a very long time, but I've started using hidden inserts underneath field points and broadheads to get more mass in timber arrows. So, yeah. and they used to play with four to centre years ago by hollowing out the tail tail mm. end of an arrow. You know, so there's all of these innovative solutions that they've come up with in the past. If, if you apply those today, um, you, you can't help but, mm. but advance. You know, there's, uh, like you get a carbon arrow, a carbon arrow, you've got outsert technology, you've got insert technology. You, know, you can now go and buy a 300 grain arrowhead yeah, that's right. That's something we saw just recently. I think just Grizzly, uh, the Grizzly company in the states had brought out three hundred grain gluon points, which is yeah. I'm not up on who was who's producing what because mm. I make so much of my own gear now. I'm not even out of touch with that. Yeah, but yeah, I do know that there are commercially available three hundred grain mm. um, broadheads. You know, and uh, to my mind, there's no disadvantage uh, to how extreme your forward ascent gets. Mm. It just uh, makes length and, and stiffness come into play a lot more in the arrow tune when you start putting 300 grains on the front of a shaft. You need very, very stiff shafts to go along with it. So what sort of FOC range would you typically like to run in, in your hunting setup? Mate, I, I've about 18-20% is what I end up at. So getting up into that high, you know, high to ex- you know, high end of high FOC to nearly into the you know, Ed's extreme FOC range. Yeah, uh, 
it, it wasn't a number that I, I sort of dreamed up. This is what I'm aiming for. This is just something that evolved. Mm. Uh, you know, once I learned to um, foot arrows, for instance, and you would, I, I worked out that I didn't say I didn't have any 125 grain points, but mm. I could still maintain a high forward centre and get better arrow flight for if I used a lump of ironbark mm. for the footing. Ironbark foots on hoop point shafts or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that, that's it. And just over time, it evolved into um, I would, I would, you know, a, a hardwood fitting, a hardwood f- fitting, uh, footing, um, whatever arrow timber float was floating my boat at the time mm. for the shaft. Uh, uh, I, I, I was using a. Davies uh, broadheads, the mm-hmm. you know the big hundred and eighty grainers, you know the yeah. the deltas, the Aztecs. Uh, what's that? Not the yeah. Well, I, con- I forget which is the long, long, skinny one, the javelin or the the concords they make in two, yeah, big ones. Uh, yeah, the hundred and sixties or two twenties. I think they make those. Yeah, you know? they're quite big. You see, I, I had a I had a vague reference in my mind. I'd read years ago where Howard Hill broadheads were considered the best. Because they had this three to one ratio, you know, they're three mm-hmm. inches long and an inch wide, and that was considered the best for penetration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, it just it just all evolved around that. Uh, but what I most often what you'll find me with now is I'll have a um, a larger diameter shaft uh, that's a parallel from you know six or eight inches behind the broadhead and then it uh, tapers back to, yeah. to say a five sixteenths knock or something back to very small tails yeah yeah I think that's something that Ed touches on with his study is tapered shafts definitely give you more penetration than, than a parallel shaft and a barrel tapered shaft is worse again well you, you don't think about like you've got the friction of the air against the arrow mm-hmm. and then uh, as we touched on earlier when the arrow sh- strikes the animal yep. they, uh, the oscillations start all over again but then you've got a different degree of friction on the arrow shaft as it mm, when as, you as start to pass through when you when you hit the animal, the, the animal you know, so. yeah that's right there's a lot of things start to go into it yeah so it, it makes sense that you know surface area is friction Mm. So it makes perfect sense to me that a, a parallel shaft is going to have more friction than a, a, a tapered shaft. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I, I, I can touch on those those things a little bit, um, you know, with, with what I've done in, you know, fluid mechanics and things like that through my studies. I've, you know, I've seen the drag functions and coefficients and whatnot, and, you know, it's definitely a big thing um, you know you get increases in drag with increases in velocity but then if you've got a lower surface area then you get that decrease in drag again so well, see, you, you just prompted me there uh, as the forward centre of my arrows increased the surface area of my fletchers decreased so mm. I stopped using you know yeah. uh, five inch commercial feathers or uh, feathers I cut myself with a high prop high profile mm. uh, typically my arrows now they're I'm 
maybe using a three and a half or four inch fletch, and they're actually not. They're barely as cut as high as a uh, a commercially available fletch. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, having that that bigger distance from the center of mass to the center of drag. I mean, you're going to get the center of drag and where the feathers are. That's your drag point, and you know, if that center of mass is a long way from the center of drag, you need a lot smaller feathers to steer the arrow or keep the arrow tracking straight even with some of these really big broadheads that can um you know hydroplane on or, or um plane in, in flight so you know moving that foc getting that high foc moving that mass forward is definitely advantageous for several factors in building the arrow not only in penetration but also in um you know getting good uh, you know long range arrow flight Exactly, mate. Yes. Um, you know, I know when I when I'm building arrows a lot more so now. Um, you know, because of my heavy bows. You know, my my average hunting recurve now that my Taipan, my takedown Taipan, it's eighty pounds at twenty eight inches. Building arrows for that bow is particularly wooden shafts is becoming interesting. Um, you know, I've I've planed out twenty three sixty fourth American Ash arrows. You know, something that would have been used back in the day. You know, in fifties, sixties, seventies, that would have been commercially available. Um, even those arrows are, you know, I'm not getting big FOCs in them because they're just not stiff enough. So I'm going to have to resort to now trying spotted gum. I've actually gone to a, a heavy Australian eucalypt to use as arrow shafts, and I'm going to try starting with a 3 8 parallel and then taper that down to hopefully, uh, you know, start off with a 30, 31 or 32 inch long shaft. My draw length's only 28 inches, but I'll start with a 30, 30 or 32 inch long shaft and then slowly taper it down to get the, the, the spine to suit and get it to bear shaft right. And then I'll, uh, you know, I'll start with some big heavy heads, you know, 150 grain heads with 100 grain hidden inserts or something like that to get that big FOC and then I'll taper them down, so that's sort of where my arrow building is is headed. See, I, I remember Ed was telling me of, he struck similar thing, and I know that he was using Ipe or Ipe, Ipe I yeah. pronounce it, uh, for a lot of his arrow shafts. Mm. And I've actually got one at home. I ended up modifying it and using it as a ramrod for my muzzle load, so it gives you an idea of how how stiff. Yeah, it's solid. That stuff. Yeah. Very, yeah. very solid. But uh, the, the, the thing is, when, uh, when fiberglass was developed, you know, that did enable higher performance bows to be made mm. uh, because they could hold uh, more ungraced reflex and yeah, high. higher, higher strains you know, than uh, your average wood bow can. Mm. Uh, well, they didn't really... When you, when you look back at the arrows of those days, they were, at, at best, they were Port Orford cedar that they, mm. they were compressed Port Orford cedar. Mm -hmm. uh, they had the, whatever broadhead was available, you know, like those Howard Hills or the Zwickies or yeah, the Ben Pearson yeah. deadheads or, or whatever. Yep. And they had great huge fletching. Yeah, it's you know, always a thing you see in Howard, Howard Hill's videos or on Fred Bear's arrows in his old photos. They're always, you know, five or six inch feathers, big parabolic feathers. Yeah, and it, it, it makes me wonder that what, was all of this geared towards uh, 
just what was commercially available. So that's what they went with. Mm. And nobody really, nobody really considered uh, these these factors that, that Ed's rediscovered. I, I don't think anyone's considered them. I know there's some guys now, some of the, the guys that are into trad stuff now and you know on YouTube, they've done video comparisons and, and they're backing up what Ed's already written you know in his study that, that from you know 40 years ago when he started it all. And these guys now have come along and confirmed it with video footage and, and that's all well and good. You know, I think it's it's good to have that information out there and and sort of be um, available for everybody. See, there's, there's quite a bit of developments gone into uh, the ballistic studies with rifles, rifle mm. projectiles. Yeah, definitely. You know, but no one's really bothered to take it to the to that extent mm. up until now. You know, uh, with like that interview, that meat eater interview with uh, Ed, Ed was saying that they've now got a proper high-speed camera mm. uh, that, you know, 3,000 frames a second so mm. that they can actually properly study what happens yeah. when an arrow hits the bone, where they can actually see it instead mm. of theorising. Yeah, that's and, right. And this is why this is... Why this is this um, arrow lethality study is so important to archery, mm. all forms of archery, not just hunting, because we've, we've never really studied the ballistic qualities of an arrow to, no. to this degree. No, that's right. And there's a lot of implications that are going to come from it. Um, you know, and we might even see one day that what's available in the market starts to swing towards the things that Ed, you know, these 12 factors that Ed's come up with, we'll see things like 300 grain broadheads now becoming commercially available so that guys that want to shoot big FOC arrows, you know, heavy F, uh, heavy arrows with big FOC, that's going to be easier to achieve. I think it's already started, Tom. Uh, the, what is it, those grizzly sticks? Yeah, I think it's grizzly they're, they're sticks. They're tied in somewhere along the line with Ed. Mm. And... There, there's several other brands of carbons that have thicker carbon at the point end. Mm. And they're sort of internally tapered is the way I would, or reinforced at the point end anyway. Yeah. You know, and then you've got the... Uh, I mean, we started to see it too with steel adapters and, and brass inserts for carbon arrows as well. That They're, you know, a couple of ways that are starting to become more popular now that you can get more point you know point mass so it's slowly swinging that way and it's good that it is because you know there's physics there to back up what Ed's doing uh, and that's only going to make us more effective in what we're doing in terms of being out in bush and, and putting arrows into game well you know, as we're alluding we're at the stage now like that 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 prototype bow of yours the uh the peregrine mm. you're at the stage now where you're pretty much at the limits of what you can do with wood yeah I, I've, from your arrow perspective anyway yeah that's right it's it's very difficult you know to get a hunting draw weight bow i mean that bow i suppose is pushing the limits again because it's it's dropped um dropped the draw weight down in in what's required to get hunting weight arrows i mean five you know 550 600 grain arrows at a good enough speed to 
have enough kinetic energy and momentum to take down what we have walking around in Australia, that bow is sort of um, breaking the rules a little bit in that I'm because it's achieving such high arrow speeds, I can shoot heavier arrows at light draw weights. I mean, we shot this morning and I was shooting a 500 grain arrow at 185 feet per second out of a 40 pound recurve, which is you know unheard of really. Um, well, you, you get somebody like me with uh, my, you know, I'm all crippled up now, mm. and so I'm forced to shoot low, low draw weight bows, and that has definitely curtailed my hunting. Mm, that's but right. With, with this peregrine, uh, it's very likely that you know it, it remains to be seen yet, but it's, it's looking like I'm going to be able to shoot, say, a thirty-five pound bow. Mm. With uh, you know 600, 700 grain arrows, yeah, they might only be travelling at one hundred and forty feet a second. But I've been shooting self bows for 25, 30 years that I'll be shooting at one hundred and forty feet a second, mm. and I've had no problem taking down mm. uh, you know pigs, goats. Yeah, you know, definitely. Your, your average game that I mm. I, I, I come across. That's it, and it also, you know, I'll go into it in later podcasts. An idea that we've been, we've sort of been toying with is go through the different bottle uh, bow models that I have out and what they are and why they're built the way that they're built. But um, there's a few things definitely came into designing the Peregrine that I took into account. One was I wanted to achieve, you know, 190 feet per second at 10 grains per pound and I've done that with both versions of it that I've made now than in the two prototypes that I have they're both hitting those speeds but that because I'm able to achieve those kind of arrow velocities um, it opens up to having um, older guys that are starting to lose condition people that have problems in strength and also ladies can get into the hunting game and know that they can shoot heavy enough arrows out of lightweight bows and be able to get good penetration on animals. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it all... It, this is why we keep harping back to Ed's study. Mm. He's identified 12 factors that if you apply these 12 factors, this will happen. He's, he's mm. identified what is required. And, uh, like, you when, when you look at the advertising, the, the marketing blurb, it's, it's all speed, it's all kinetic energy, mm. right? Yeah, but they're only two. Yeah, they're just little little parts yeah, of the pie, really. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's You, you get a pie, mm. and you've got to fill that whole pie up, mate. Mm. If, if you've got a, a slice of the pie missing, well, it's not a whole pie, it's not going to work. Yeah, that's it. I mean, me personally, I, I, you know, energy, kinetic energy, and muzzle energy is all well and good. It's good to have that big energy, but for me, mass and momentum is more important because if I can get a heavier arrow going at a decent speed, that arrow is going to be harder to slow down when it hits something, and that's going to transfer into you know more results at the back end of it. And with that, though, you've got more mass, you've got more momentum. Mm. You need, you've got the structural integrity. Of the of the broadhead, you've got the structural integrity of the arrow shaft. Mm, it, it's it. it's inescapable. It is all linked. Yeah, it's all tied together. And, and so many people dismiss it outright. Mm. 
they say, oh, if I shoot my 350 or 400 grain carbon arrow out of my 80 pound XYZ compound, it's going to smash anything. <laughs> what happens when it hits a big, a big shoulder blade? Yeah, and 99% of the time it may be the case. But th this is the fundamental misunderstanding with Ed's study and also with preparing your arrows uh, and tuning your bow and everything. You've got to prepare for that worst case scenario. That's right. You've got to... It's no use being half-assed with, with anything. Mm. No, for sure, that's it. So you know, there's a lot of things that need to need to be addressed when you're designing arrows for, you know, particularly if you plan on taking game with animals that, you know, you need to be sure of your gear, it's going to do the job. So I think it's, it's important to go through, you know, for any guys out there that are interested in hunting, taking animals, you know, they need to go through Ed's study and, and try and make some of the things in it, you know, for, foremost in their mind that, you know, this is how I need to set my arrows up for the best results. See, the, what, one thing that in the last four or five years, you know, like I, say that the Abbey Medieval Festival that you touched on in your first podcast, mm. I, I've attended that since, uh, you know, the, about 97 or 98, uh, off and on right through until a couple of years ago with the, the traditional archery company there that just mm -hmm. had the shooting range. Yep. And my role was to sit there and just make bows and talk about archery to the general public. Mm -hmm. But over time, I developed a real interest in medieval archery. Yeah. Uh, and specifically, the arrows. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you actually look at the development of those arrows as uh, anti-personnel weapons, basically. Yeah, well, we, you know, yeah, don't sugarcoat it. That's what they are. That's what they were for. Uh, these <laughs> principles apply to them. Yeah, and they do. A definitely. thousand years ago, they were awake to it. Mm. I'm sure if you you, you studied uh, any of the arrows used in warfare, they they were they applied these principles to them. Mm, definitely. Yeah. You know? So uh, hunting arrows. We, the, uh, you get, say, the North American um, uh, people there, they, depending on where they live, some of them used uh, a river cane. Mm. Yeah, like, river uh, cane. From a structural yeah. integrity perspective, that stuff is strong. Yeah, it's very it's, strong, but, you know, it also has a natural taper to it. It, it has a taper, right? So... I don't think it's a coincidence that Mother Nature provides a material like that definitely Mother Nature she she tapers your, your river cane shaft mm -hmm. because it, it needs to withstand the wind it needs to withstand all sorts of everything that nature can thrive mm. so from a structural integrity point of view it's it it's grows. the perfect material yeah for it grows very strong yeah i mean bamboo is the same the same you know basically the same setup as what river cane is it has it has nodes it grows hollow so you get those those properties where it is very light you know it's it's second moment of inertia is increased because it is hollow yeah. 
even trees grow mm. in, in that taper. So yeah, shoot shafts is exactly the same. You get a taper in shoot shafts. So yeah, definitely. And you know, primitive people took advantage of all of those things. Um, yeah, they, they, they didn't have the scientific knowledge, but they had the they knew what worked. Yeah, practical experience for yes. sure. I mean, even as as far as you know, people have touched on it. There's, there's guys over in the US that are in looking at it, looking into it now, is using very small points to take big animals. But if you look at the arrow setup, irrespective of the point, they're shooting long shafts, so they're getting big mass. They're shooting, you know, hardwood four shafts, so they're trying to increase the forward of center. And then you've got this heavy arrow moving at a good speed with good FOC. Even if it has a small point on it, that small point's still going to cut. Mm. So you're still going to get good drive through the animal. Yes, so. that's it. Right, I think we might wrap up for this one. It's been a good long chat. I've very much enjoyed talking arrows and, and your history in archery. Um, you know, we'll definitely have you back on because you did help me design one of the, the bow models that I have out, the Taipan. So we'll get you back on again. Um, and we'll talk about that bow and, and how it came to be and why it is how it is. It's been my pleasure, mate. Thank you. All right, as always, guys, um, jump on Facebook, Outlaw Bows. Instagram is Outlaw underscore Bows and the YouTube channel if you guys have any interest in any of this stuff. Um, you know, Feel free to drop comments on this video when it goes up. And if you've got questions, we'll do our very best to answer them. Cheers very much for listening and take it easy. See you, folks. <laughs>